Before you listen to today's episode, I thought I'd just take a quick moment to update you on a few things that have changed with the podcast. You might have noticed that over the last few episodes, the ones that I've been recording around coronavirus and food, it's just been me and no Karis. The reason for that is that in January... Karis decided that she didn't want to be part of the podcast anymore. And so for the first couple of months, I kind of continued releasing episodes that we had pre-recorded and hadn't really said too much about it to anyone. But I thought that as I'm coming to the end of my reserve stock, it would probably be a good idea to let you know what's going on. So yeah, it's going to be me going forward with my other half, Dave, who is doing a great job of picking up the editing and all of the bits and bobs that Karish used to do behind the scenes. So really, before I hand over to myself and Karis uh, in a former time, I just want to say thank you because she really gave me the kick up the arse that I needed to get this podcast started. And without her, it would definitely not be where it is today. So on the off chance that you are listening, Karis, thank you so much. Everything you did was awesome and it was a great year and a half and I absolutely loved doing the podcast with you but yeah from this point forward it's just me I'm afraid guys since we recorded this episode Jen has launched something called the Bristol Fire School it's essentially a cookery school for people who want to learn to do wood-fired cooking asado smoking fire pits you name it anything to do with outdoor cooking and fire Bristol Fire School is what you want. So make sure you check that out. You can find them on Instagram, Bristol underscore fire underscore school. And there's more details on Jen's website as well. So I will stop rambling and hand over to today's episode. Hello, welcome to At The Source. I'm Karis and this is Alex. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food. And eating it. So we wanted to talk to fellow food lovers and record their stories. We're having conversations with everyone from home cooks to food producers and restaurateurs. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. At my first ever visit to Abergavenny Food Festival, I went to a food styling and photography session that Jen was facilitating and was fascinated by her ability to turn simple food items into something that's super sexy for the camera. Then looking into her career further, I was in awe of her achievement. She has more than a few books under her belt, has presented on TV and radio, has been the food stylist for books, TV and film, and is a BBC food program regular and a judge on BBC's Food and Farming Awards. And she still finds the time to cook outdoors and manage her allotment. We've been trying to get a short spot in her busy schedule for quite a while. And now finally we've got her and we're sitting at her kitchen table ready to pester her with questions. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for joining us. Hi. So, Jen. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Um, And secondly, we have to start the way we always start, which is um, what is your first memory of food? Oh, my God. First memory of food. Um, I can remember, I'm really greedy. I, um, I remember being, as a young child, being um, obsessed with eating. And I've got a very vivid memory of being on a beach in St Ives in Cornwall. And my granddad gave me 50p, but I wasn't allowed to spend it. And all I could think about was, like, what I was going to spend this on. Here we go. Um, yeah, what I could spend my 50p on, and I remember sort of sitting on the beach digging sandpits thinking, shall I buy sweets? Shall I buy an ice cream? Shall I buy a donut? And that, I, I don't know, that's a really vivid memory. Can you remember? Four or something, I don't know. What did you spend your 50p on? Um, I think I bought a bag of penny chews, which in those days, like penny chews were penny chews, so that meant I, I had 50 of them. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'll tell you what, you're not going to get 50 penny chews these days, <laughs> are you? It's like 10 pence each or something. Okay, well, you can still at least get five then, yeah. which is... It's not the same though, is it? No, mm-hmm. never is. Where does your love of food come from? I think it stems from from greed, um, <laughs> from enjoying feeding people. I really love kind of making food. It's like an expression of love, isn't it? When mm, you make absolutely. people you like something nice to eat. Um, and I like, I'm very, I, I think I'm quite creative and I just enjoy that process of grabbing kind of raw ingredients and turning it into something completely different. It's kind of like an alchemy, isn't it? You know, making flavours, making things more than the sum of their individual parts in ter- terms of taste. Like the word alchemy. Yeah. It is, it's yeah. magic, isn't it? It is you magic. You have these raw ingredients and yeah. at the end of it you've got something that looks completely different yeah. and tastes it wouldn't taste the same if it wasn't the sum of those parts but also it doesn't taste like those things individually exactly magic and I am you know I dream about flavours I always remember reading some kind of shitty article about Victoria Beckham of which I'm no fan of but her saying that she dreams about fashion Mm. and she kind of puts her outfits together in her sleep and I do that with food I kind of dream about food and I can I can kind of taste things in my thoughts does that make sense it's like I can imagine how things will taste together so I kind of bring my dishes together in my head for definite so you love food (laughs) so much yeah but you got a degree in biology and then you spent the first nine years of your career working on natural history programs where how did that sort of happen then I mean, the love of food has been since sort of the dawn of time. And I, you know, I learned to cook when I was very young. My mum was a single parent. I was expected to make the family meals when she was at work. And, you know, it was kind of so I've been Mm. cooking forever. But I also was quite academic at school and really um, enjoyed kind of biology and geography and and science. Um, And the expectation was that I would go on to get a degree which I did and um, I was the first you know person in my family to get a degree and um, and I love kind of biology and nature and wildlife and those things are always really important and I, I that, that, that's the reason I'm in Bristol because I did my degree in Manchester and then I moved to Bristol straight after graduating specifically to get a job in the natural history unit here and kind of did that and started as a researcher and worked my way up to a producer and then then got pregnant and thought, I don't want to go back to telly. My son's 15 now. And it was amazing. When I was in my 20s and sort of single and travelled the world and went all over the place and I probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time. But now looking mm. back, it was like, that was pretty amazing, that job. Absolutely. But it's not a job you can combine with family. Um, and I I had my son and uh, after about three weeks of being a mother I thought I can't you know there's <laughs> no way I can be a mum full time this is just gonna you know we're gonna kill each other because it's just not in my makeup to, mm. you know I like to have lots of things to do and, um, 
and be super busy. So I just, I, I started, um, when he was six weeks old, I think, I started making kind of jams and chilli jellies and chutneys and I and sort of stockpiling them. And then when he was three months old, I got a stall at the then Slow Food Market in Bristol okay. and s- sold them. And then and then that kind of gave me the a bit of confidence and then did bits of catering with somebody else and then set up my own catering company. It just sort of, the food thing kind of spiralled really from a, from a design to to work as a mum and trying to find things that could fit in and um and and food like I said was the thing I always felt like I was best at so it was natural for me to turn back to food really once I gave up telly that's interesting though it was the first thing well possibly not the first thing but it was the thing that just went you know what this is easy because other people might have picked other things I'm not sure yeah but you just went straight to food yeah yeah, because I knew I was good at food, you know, from, from cooking as a, as a child through to kind of, you know, as a student kind of cooking for my friends and, you know, sort of, I knew that food was something I could do. So you said that you learned to cook when you were growing up. Mm. Um, did you learn from mm. your mum? Mm-hmm. And did you have any other influences? Yeah, well, mum, mum was a really good cook, but she um, she worked quite long hours. She was a dental nurse, um, um, so I cooked. I cooked from her. But as I said, I was the expectation was that me and my brother, he's a very good cook as well. Um, we we would get involved in making the kind of family meals. So. So I kind of saw that as a challenge and, you know, got the cookbooks out and I had a Mary Berry phase when all I wanted to cook was cakes, which is kind of what my 12-year-old daughter's like now. I guess I must have been about her age, I don't know. And then I moved on to curry and I was obsessed with Madda Jaffrey. And my granddad gave me her, um, one of her curry books for Christmas, I think. I can't quite remember when he gave it to me, but then, then it was like everybody, it was like curry all the time and, you know, I'd sort of seek out all the spices and kind of grind them up and yeah which wasn't very easy in Plymouth in the 1980s it's like the least multicultural city in the country getting hold of all the things yeah, that you needed exactly I managed to get most of them having spoken to you or listened to you talking this morning mm. I can now understand with your background in mm. kind of nature and and loving the outdoors yeah. how you then moved into your cooking with fire yeah and Karis and I agree that you're probably one of the most chilled people we've ever seen just there with these open flames <laughs> cooking just you know massive hunks of this and that and she wears these silver sandals that, that was ridiculous <laughs> I know I got so told off for wearing silver sandals that was at my book launch yeah I know Joe's my sort of partner in crime when it comes to cooking and my best mate we um she's she's much more sensible than I am and yeah she's just, just you know fat wearing fire <laughs> <laughs> can you pinpoint the point when you develop this love for outdoor cooking yeah it's it's, it's super super easy again it's connected everything goes back to sort of the kids and the family and stuff and as a kind of working mum um I found it quite frustrating that I, I felt chained to the kitchen a lot of the time and kind of food had become more, you know, regimental. It's like everybody needs three feeding three times a day and, you know, mm. you know it's just, then it becomes a bit of a chore. Mm. So for me, um, taking my cooking outside just 
is is a sort of moment to kind of break the shackles of the kitchen and and release you know get myself outside because what I really like doing is being outside and 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 it's just a way of combining the two things that I love really now fire is one of those things that probably scares a lot of people not because you know least because obviously it's, it's fire. destructive <laughs> capabilities yeah indeed but yeah because you know there is no control and the idea of cooking on flame you're going to end up with burnt bits and yeah. it's going to be a struggle yeah I mean I imagine there was probably a lot of practice involved in where you're at now mm. um and and to the point where you can quite confidently now explain to people this is the best way to go about it because I've you know you've been putting a few things on um on your social media lately mm. but is is there a way that people can just not be afraid of cooking with fire and going oh that just seems overwhelming I, I guess it's just like anything isn't it it's like the more you do it the more confidence you give yourself and if you if you kind of drag your barbecue out of the shed twice a year mm. it's going to be a bit of an intimidating thing um, and I always say that it's the, 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 the only thing you need to master with fire cooking is the fire because apart from the fire it's just cooking you know mm. it's like you can cook anything on fire like anything at all I can imagine it's a bit like when people buy a wok and then they keep it on a medium heat and they're too scared to get it really, really hot. It's just being aware of the, I guess, the uncontrollable temperature. Well, it's, 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 it's learning to master the fire. That's kind of all there is to it. Um, is you know is controlling the heat and I think one of the things that people do wrong particularly in this country where barbecue is a kind of twice a year thing Mm. sometimes um, is that they just cook everything really hot you know you sort of flood your whole Mm. grill with coals and you've got no wriggle room you've got nowhere to hide so I, I always say you need to you need to set up your grill so you've got kind of hot spots and cold spots so you do direct and indirect cooking basically so you mm. put your charcoal on one side and then you've got kind of half even three quarters of the grill with no direct heat underneath it and then you can move things around and you you're then instantly in control of the fire because mm. if you've got fire everywhere you know it's hot you can't get away from that it's, you can't kind of turn the knob down and change it so you you just have to work w- with the fire I think as well as um, it feels, and I might be completely wrong because I live in a flat yeah. <laughs> um, and don't own a barbecue, but the idea of barbecues in my lifetime mm. growing up in, in Britain is mm. that people wheel out these little gas things and they may as well be at home mm. uh, in the kitchen yeah. on their gas hob. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's different in Australia because I know everyone barbecues a lot more because the weather's kinder, but how <laughs> frequently would you have seen someone on an actual charcoal grill with with fire it feels like this is next generation barbecuing no it's backwards generation barbecuing we were doing this like a hundred years ago it's coming full circle is i guess what i mean and i always think um you know i'm really interested in kind of fire and the evolution of fire and i'm sort of i'm hoping my next book is going to be a bit 
not not so much a cookery book, but more about the kind of social anthropology about fire lighting and mm. all of that sort of stuff. And and fire is the reason we are human because when we um, when we learn to cook with fire, we suddenly had access to more calories. Our mm. brains could get bigger, our stomachs could get smaller. You know, we had more energy, more energy. We had more sex. We had more kids. We had you know, it's all sort of interconnected. So fire fire goes back to the beginning and um and i i i've got this theory that fire is massively popular with all the kind of fancy pants michelin starred chefs of which i am very much not one of you know i'm a home cook um because they 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 all got a bit fed up with kind of sous vide and all this kind of uber technical cooking where you just put it in and turn a dial and press the button and walk away there's no skill you know there's no fun and actually fire just because you've got to master and manage and control the fire and there are so many variables it's just it just makes cooking exciting again I think and I think that's why all these kind of Michelin star blokes are cooking with fire and I say blokes because it is all blokes pretty much it is it is all blokes I'd like to quickly talk about your cookbook chard yeah so you were as as we understand it asked to write that in quite a quick turnaround yeah and it's been really well received you've got some amazing yeah. reviews on Amazon and yeah bestseller bestseller all summer which I'm so excited about it's only taken 10 books to get here but yeah I kind of got there it would be interesting I think for our listeners to understand a little bit about the writing process yeah behind Chard but also any cookbook yeah I mean my um I wrote Chard in about ten, eight weeks, ten weeks. And now, when you say write Chard, yeah. that actually involves so much more than just putting uh, fingers to keys or pen yeah, to paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because every recipe is obviously tested. How many um, times? I generally test my recipes once because they work. And I don't. I know some. <laughs> I know some cook, cookery writers will do it three times, but I don't. I think if you write a recipe well, and you cook a recipe well, you don't need to do it three times. I don't. I don't mean so. I don't want to sound sort of arrogant about that. But if if you, like I said earlier, a lot of my recipes are in my head already, so they're already kind of almost like they're tested once up there. Um, and then when I make them, they taste good, you know. And that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and actually, I don't. You know, I could make it again, and I often do. The things that I really love, I obviously make them lots of times. Um, so you've got these recipes in your head. What comes first, getting out into the garden and having a bash, or sitting down and typing them out before they disappear from your mind? I um, I tend to kind of have a session of brainstorming when I just get recipe titles down and that would be just as a list like things that I think would work and things that I've been thinking about and then I just get outside and cook and then I sort of scribble it you know I, my poor laptop is splattered and battered and I, you know I sometimes will take that out or kind of have it in here or and I just sort of tap things out roughly as I'm dimming them and then I kind of go back to it and write it in a sort of legible way that people are going to be able to follow afterwards. So it's a kind of it's a kind of process that begins in my brain and then goes as a 
there's a kind of list of ideas then it gets cooked so you're kind of lucky in that when you're doing your cookbooks you don't actually have to hire a food stylist or um, I think actually I think I should clarify I think my publishers are lucky because they get it okay also two for one (laughs) they get me yeah they get me doing the styling and how when you're looking at a dish is that also in your head when you're going okay I'm thinking yeah. about I've got my eyes closed but when you're thinking about these flavours and all these textures and then in your head are you also seeing them mm. on perhaps a specific platter that you mm. own and going yep that's going to be the way it looks yeah kind of yeah definitely I definitely think about how stuff's going to look before I've made it that's and part of and textures and that's part of that going back to the statement you made right at the start that food feeding people is love because it isn't just about how it tastes it is initially about how it looks yeah I remember my mum always saying to me when I was little that you eat with your eyes first yeah and being able to visualize how something's going to look on your ceramics or other things yeah um and how you're going to lay it out on the page that's I think quite a skill because sometimes when I'm cooking at home I'll imagine that I'm going to make it look really pretty and then it's just a bowl of brown it's one of the garnish that's what you need this is just a little bit of parsley on no carrot it's parsley garnish that's a bit 90s isn't it oh that's harsh oh sorry I like parsley <laughs> I just remember when I worked in a pub the last thing that went on every single yeah, dish that curly parsley a long piece of curly yeah. parsley it didn't yeah, matter what it was it could have been a pizza yeah. now you slice it up a little bit and you yeah. sprinkle it around and it adds yeah. like that little bit of fresh sort of zing when you crunch into it so parsley is never going to go out of style it's just how you use it it's my favorite herb garnish that you can't eat what's your thought oh come on it's just entirely pointless garnish entirely entirely pointless i always ate that parsley yeah (laughs) it didn't matter how dry and (laughs) dry and old it was yeah i'm not a big fan of uh micro herbs getting dumped on top of (laughs) just whatever oh yeah that'll look good mostly breakfast when they just chuck a big handful of micro herbs and it's like actually doesn't even i just want the bacon man yeah 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 yeah. micro herbs have got no place with bacon do they really especially if it's like coriander because actually even the micro coriander tastes really strongly of coriander and actually that might bear no resemblance to what you're eating Mm. but it looks pretty Mm. yeah i think we're going to get added on social media by (laughs) garnish um, lovers around the world <laughs> don't at us no, garnish, garnish is really important and actually I did a whole book on soup um, uh, quite a few years ago now and, and actually you know can you imagine food styling a book on soup that must have been really hard and writing recipes but Lots pretty much garnish. everything had and the way to elevate kind of soup from kind of just soup is something interesting on top mm. you know so like kind of a gremolata or mm. kind of some spicy crunchy nuts that you've fried yes. some sugar and bits and bobs and chopped up and put on you mm. know you've got to think about what goes on top and so so garnish is crucial but it has to kind of it has to make sense to the dish that's underneath so when you're writing a whole book about soup yeah are you most often pitching your ideas or are publishers coming to you and saying hey jen we want to do soup can you make soup sexy again yeah it, it, it in the beginning um people came to me so my first book um was on stews and that's um i'm really 
prior to Flat Book. It was for Absolute Press, and I'd done a few food styling projects for Absolute Press over in Bath, uh, doing other people's books. And then every time I did one, I'd be like, please let me have a go at writing a book, please. And I sort of ground them down, and they came to me and said, Jen, Jen we've got this book. We want writing a book about a stew. Will you do it? Do as a pitch. And I did, and that was the first book. Um, so, so in the beginning, that that was the kind of start. But now mm. I'm fires my sort of thing, and I'm I'm just sort of trying to stick to that really because we've all got to have our niches. Mm. It's a pretty crowded market out there Absolutely. for food writers. There's a lot of people, and this is what I am known for. I do I do do a bit of baking in the house. I make I make a mean Victoria sponge, but people don't want to hear about that. Um, but Unless yeah, you can cook it on the barbecue. Well, you can. Of course, you can. I made tart tatang can on the barbecue you? the other day. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw that. Mm, good. That was awesome. So good. But okay. you could make a Victoria. Sorry, I know we need to move on. But you could yeah. make a Victoria sponge yeah, on the barbecue. You can make anything. Like I would said, you do it in a bowl or? No, you just do it in tins. Just you, literally, just like you would. You yeah, just, of course. Just how you would. It in just the... has to be. You got to have a lid. So that's my totally top tip for anybody barbecuing: get a barbecue with a lid because you wouldn't cook in your oven in your kitchen and leave the door open. Would you? <laughs> Hope for the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All that energy is just sort of disappearing into the ether. So yeah, if you've got a lid and you have a little fire and you put your cake on the other side away from the fire you've made an oven it makes perfect sense with that point about the lid but you you need someone to tell you that yeah because actually of course you wouldn't cook with your oven door open not unless you were stupid (laughs) I'm trying to get a timeline in my head so because you do so many different things You do the food styling, mm-hmm. you do the writing, mm-hmm. you do the ceramic, all of these things. So you, you you had your son, you sort of started getting into, you know, bits and pieces here and there to yeah. do with food. Yeah. When did the food styling come into it? I probably, God, I need to rake back in my brain. So my son was born in 2004. I probably started food styling maybe like 2006 2007 it's all sort of it just all sort of happened bits and pieces here Mm. and there really and it just built up really and then my first I can't even remember when my first book was published it was either 2010 or maybe 2011 and everything kind of happens at once really and that's the beauty of being freelance I think I I mean I think I probably get bored quite easily which is why I like to do so many different things Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about uh, so recently you were styling for a TV project yeah and you were making some oysterless oysters I was yeah is that the kind of stuff that you really love to do or is it just kind of well I've got to do the styling job and it's kind of part of it but whatevs or do you really like experimenting and sort of working out I think with the food styling, what I really love doing is the stuff that's going to challenge me. So I'm not so interested anymore in doing kind of food for kind of packaging and kind of, you know, we'll do recipe books if it's recipes that I think mm. I'm going to love. But, but but the food styling I really like doing is the kind of film and TV and commercial work because it's insane and it's so completely polar opposite to my job as this kind of wholesome fire cook who kind of grows vegetables so mm. you know I did a big job for Gucci over the summer in um, in Rome where I had to make kind of insane kind of towering jellies and sort of set 
dolls inside them and you know it's just completely mad and it's more like kind of art than food you know food's got nothing to do with it in a way it's just making art with food and that's what I quite like doing I couldn't do it all the time because it's super Mm. super kind of shallow in a way in a, <laughs> in a it, you know in a world where there, people are kind of hungry and you know me making jelly for a living seems a bit daft but it's fun for a bit all of these things you make so you posted a photo the other day of this most amazing cake all of oh, the profiteroles um, there was the one oh a big cake yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. ornamentation yeah, on it that was for a regency banquet what, what happens with all of that well that wasn't a real cake so it was okay, like polystyrene cool. inside because I knew it wasn't going to get eaten so it's just icing so it was a kind of icing oh that's good icing work um, there is kind of some wastage particularly on these sort of film sets um, when we're doing styling for kind of cookery books and recipe projects it, it pretty much always gets eaten because it, the food that I make is is edible I don't sort of faff around with kind of painting stuff with you know and there's no glue or no tampons soaked in water and put in the microwave no none of that nonsense <clears throat> not not for kind of real food but for sort of de- um film food or kind of you know this gucci thing none of that was going to get eaten so don't fancy a jelly with a baby in the middle exactly kind of weird kind of plastic carnations set in it and yeah so that wasn't that wasn't edible but can you explain to our listeners just quickly re- rewinding back because we know because we saw it on social media yeah. why oysterless oysters so it was it's it was for a um, a big tv drama about Catherine the Great and Catherine had to eat oysters in this kind of seduction scene um, poor Catherine whoever <laughs> Catherine I can't remember what actress it was but um, she had to kind of gulp down five oysters in quick succession that was the that was the scene and by the time they'd done reshoots it would have been like 40 oysters mm, wow <laughs> um, I'm, I'm no oyster fan I, I actually can't bear them but it you know so there was the fact that she had to eat so many but also it's sitting under hot TV lights and mm. you know there's no way I could have said that oyster's safe for you safe. to eat so we made fake ones. And what were they? I made them out of a kind of l- sloppy blamangey jelly type, and I flavoured it with some panettone oil. So it tasted Ooh. like a kind of panettone. And then I made a, a caramel syrup, which I tinted with gold dust and kind of a bit of platinum type dust that made the kind of liquor around it. This is the science coming so in. So it would have tasted like a kind of creme caramel with a Ooh. bit of orange in it. Oh, you're so kind because yeah. I can't deal with oysters either. No, they're rank, aren't they? Oh, I just don't understand it. The texture's not okay. Exactly. You, sw- you know, the people say, well, you just swallow them and it's like, well, what's, what's the, the point? point? <laughs> what is the point? Yeah, if you're not tasting it and enjoying it. The best thing about oysters is is the stuff that you put on them yeah. and that kind of, again, is a bit, just, well, yeah. just I'll just have a... A shot of vinaigrette, thank you very much. I know, people love them, don't they? But I do not love them, I'm afraid. That is an oyster I would eat, (laughs) for sure. It's really interesting, though, because you can see the science and the the food coming together there. And like you say, it might not be something you want to do all the time, but it sounds like a fun project. It's a challenge. Yeah, it's just a little bit of of a fun challenge. And, you know, we'll share that picture on our show notes. People can see how realistic they looked. Mm. I think. Yeah, I mean, I was suitably grossed out. (laughs) (laughs) I think that does the job. What's next, Jen? What's next? Um, Pitching for new books. 
got a couple of things that are with my publisher at the moment and hoping to hear back quite soon but it's it's going to be fire um it's going to be kind of fire lighting and hopefully not you know sort of dispelling the myth that fire's tricky mm. and making it um what i'd like to do is um make fire accessible for everybody it's not just a thing that you see these kind of big hairy sleeve tatted blokes do you know at festivals. Really it's kind of fire that ordinary people like you and i can do in our back garden that sounds really good because i think i think that's where cooking is going Mm. And it's so important that people aren't afraid of it because they think, oh, I've never done it before and yeah. looks a bit difficult. doesn't have to be. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I really like doing is empowering people to think that they can do it themselves. Mm. That it's not, you know, my food is not kind of pretentious or fancy. It's pretty straightforward and... Um, Your book is meant to be used. Yeah, for definite. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing makes me happier than when somebody kind of gets in touch to so say they've just, you know, been really been using it and it's covered in splats and, you know, I love that. That's mm. what it's there for. That's what cookbooks should look like. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm not writing coffee table books. I don't want it just to sort of sit there and be looked at. Best thing <laughs> on fire. Best thing on fire. To eat. <sighs> well... <laughs> I feel like the context was enough, but... I don't, I, I don't know. Best thing, everything's good on fire. Everything tastes better with a bit of fire, mm. I think, pretty much. And like I said, I'm greedy, so I kind of chuck everything on and see what happens, and most things work. It's an excellent ending, I think. <laughs> an excellent ending. Thank you so much for giving us your time this morning, Jen. It's been brilliant having you on At The Source. As I mentioned earlier, we'll have show notes with links to Jen's social channels, websites, some of the other things that we've talked about as well. And if you like Jen's story, you'll probably like some of our others. You can find them on our website at thesource.com or on whichever platform you use for listening to your podcasts. We also would love it if you could give us some feedback so that more people can find our stories. And as always, we're chatting and sharing behind the scenes pics on Twitter and Instagram. So come and talk to us. Until next time. Go for now.